Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Sweet. This is fun. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Nate Tobik. He's the founder of Complete Bank Data, author of the Bank Investor's Handbook, and he writes about deep value stocks on Oddball Stocks and online at oddballstocks.com. Uh, I've been following Nate for a decade. He's got one of the most eclectic approaches to investing you're ever going to hear coming up right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. So you're still doing oddball stocks. Um, uh, the bank data thing's super interesting. I want to talk to you about that because uh, I know you've been doing that for a while now, right? Is that five yeah, years, we, more than that? Yeah, we, we've changed. We were doing like stuff on the Bloomberg terminal for yeah. a while. Um, Is that still then, happening? No, no, thankfully no. Those bills were killer. That was, um, I mean, so that- How's to it be work? They charge you to be on it. Yeah, I. it was- it was only five, I, think, I want to say $500 a month per terminal, but they had some deal where you had to buy three or something. So I ended up with three terminals yeah. and I guess I was paying a thousand or something like that a month. Yeah, it was, that hurt. Is that, are you supplying them with the data or you're getting the data? We, we were, in, they had like an app store, just like Apple okay. and we were in their app store and then they, um, but you got to subscribe to to get access to it. You'd have to, to subscribe to ours, yeah. And then they would advertise us along, so that we had like ads on the bottom of of Bloomberg all the time. And um, it was a it's a funky thing. Like there's a guy Demark, the Demark signals. Yeah, he's doing. They said something like ten million a year, or twelve oh million God. on this. And that I they were like. And then they were like, yeah, we've got another couple of people doing a few million and then some people doing, you know, hundreds of thousands. And I thought, why not? We'll give yeah, it a roll shot. the dust. Yeah. Yeah. We we made almost nothing on it. it. I mean, we lost money after you count in the subscription cost. It was it was a net loss. Yeah. What a bummer. So, I thought that was, I thought it was, I remember you going on. I was like, that's super cool. This thing's really blown up. It was awesome. And it gave us I was able to get. um like the PR from it was good. I was actually able to get um, a front page story on Bloomberg.com from it, but nice. um, I mean, yeah, it just didn't it didn't pan out financially. That's a shame. That's a bummer. So how's how's it going otherwise? Good, good. I mean, we're so we pivoted from selling to investors who are totally fickle to selling to banks and um, selling like, I mean, so. Uh, Basically, like in a state, we know who owns every property, what their financial picture is, and then you could build that out and say, um, you know, citizen state bank, here's all their borrowers, here's what their borrowers look like, here's where they're located, and here's all their real-time activity and who's borrowing. And, um, and we've even done some stuff with clients where they're supplying us deals that they missed out on, so we have like real-time rate data for specific products in the market so it that's cool and yeah, that's very uh, cool and so you don't we, use it to invest how are they using it they are using it to um, find new lending like new borrowers and also to stay ahead of the competition real time 
So they know they know more about what the competitors are doing than they probably know about themselves, and they could react to that. And still growing. Yeah. Yeah. What sort of growth rate are you seeing? So we were we were doing really well. We were doing like 30, 40% a year up until COVID. And then we had a bunch of clients back in like March and April who were like, ah, oh, we want to wait on this. Yeah. Uh, so now we're retooling and we're trying to push out a product for, so the problem is this, like most banks are um, just run by idiots <laughs> and people who just <laughs> like to, you know, it's like they like the status of being a banker, right? So of the like, 4,500 banks in the US, there's probably like 200, maybe 300 that are forward thinking, pretty aggressive. So ultimately that was kind of our prospect base mm -hmm. going after those. Um, what we found out recently from some of these bankers who were like, we don't know how to sell, we don't care about selling, was they do care about deposits. And so we've retooled and we have an application now where a tiny bank who knows nothing about selling loans could say, here's our depositors, here's the 2,000 people that we have deposit accounts with, and then we could find everyone in the area in the same radius of their branches that have similar characteristics, and now they could market deposit products to them. That's so awesome. It's, that's, we just really launched that about a week or two ago, and gonna start pushing on that one now. So how did you get your start? So the first time I became aware of you was with oddball stocks and uh i didn't know exactly when that started i knew it was a long time ago but i yeah, it's I, like 2010 yeah, yeah I, I saw in the note that you sent me 2010 that's amazing so oddball stocks uh before what were you doing before oddball stocks yeah so i was i was um i worked at a tech startup and um and then from there so i i had um my dad's father left me some money to pay for college and he had done phenomenally well investing in stocks and he um he owned a, a little insurance brokerage company and he would invest all of his extra money into like growth companies in latin america and it just so happened this was like in the 80s and all this stuff was being privatized and he just had um, you know, 10 bagger after 10 bagger, right? And so then he gave uh, money to each of his grandkids. He just gave the stock uh, to pay for college. So I was able to go through college, you know, I didn't have to pay for it because my grandfather had done well investing. And coming out of college, I had like 12 grand left over. And um, I mean, I knew nothing about stocks. I took one economics class at college. I skipped everything but the tests and slept through the rest. And it was <laughs> like, you know, so I'd get these statements and it would show the yield on my portfolio was like, I don't know, one and a half percent. And I remember thinking, I was like, that's crazy that they only think I'm going to make one and a half percent over the next year on this, these companies, like, aren't they going to grow? And so I, I started to read about it to try and figure out like, what do I own? And um, from there, I got into learning about value investing. And um, and then I, I networked with um, some people locally who are in, in, in investing professionally. And I thought, well, I'll you know turn this into a career, right? And they said, take your CFA. And so I took the first level, the second level, and failed the second level, which was right as my first son was born. So like I was trying to study, I had a couple month old uh, boy and Impossible. it was just, yeah, it, it just wasn't working out. And um, we went to the beach and that's where I 
we were down at the beach on vacation and I got this email saying I failed. And I was just sitting there on the beach and I was like, if I spent the same amount of time studying, researching stocks, I would be so much better off. And at this time I had turned that, um, so I started doing like spinoffs probably when I learned about kind of figured out investing, that made sense. That was probably around 2004, 2005. And I turned that 12 grand into like 50 or 60,000. And then I thought, okay, now I have some money. I could do something with this. And so, um, I, I just decided I'm going to just research every you know couple hours every night. And um, I started Oddball Stocks because I'm just not like I'm not a structured person. Right. And so it was like I needed some place to store this information so I could go back to it and get to it any time. And so that's that's what it was. I started writing on there and um, started doing value stuff, the spinoffs. Eventually, there was no juice left to squeeze from those. Those became <laughs> popular. Um, you used to write about the um, net all nets. the uh, the net nets. I did a bunch of those. Also the uh, the stuff where it's like a company is doing the reverse split. Yeah, those those were awesome for a while, and I was um, you know scalping a couple hundred dollars to yeah, that's right. know, the odd lot. That's where odd lots. Are odd good. lots. Right. Yes, yeah, the odd lots. Some of those were phenomenal. You can make thousands on them, and um, kept. I just kept changing. Is you know, it's like. I always thought of it as like little pools of water, they would dry up and you just had to move on to the next thing. Yeah. And so um, I did Japanese net nets and um, it was actually, those were a funny investment because um, Manish Pabrai was talking about those. And I thought, oh, this is, this sounds awesome. And he gave this really compelling talk. And um, so I started to invest in them and I thought this, this is great. I'll, I'll buy a bunch of these Japanese net nets I was um, riding a bus to the office every day, and so I bought the um, Japan Company Handbook, and I actually went through that that stinking book, like every page. I I made a list, and I had I don't know 150 tickers, and then I just bought a s selection of them. Um, I did so well on those that it paid for the down payment on the house I'm in now. Wow! Congrats. And the thanks. The irony is. Uh, right around that time I was doing well, I was at um, a corner of Fairfax meetup in Toronto, and um, Manish was there talking about how terrible his Japanese net net investment worked out, and it was the stupidest thing he'd ever done, and he wished no one had done this, and I was sitting right by him, and I'm thinking, it worked out well for me. <laughs> you know, like how this, did it not work out for great. him? What was the difference? You know, I think so... I think sometimes people overthink the deep value stuff and um, you know, like you could have paralysis by analysis where you're trying to find the cheapest or you want to find something with a good business. I started buying stuff that was a net net that had over a 10% return on equity or was um, below 50% of book value with the 10% return on equity. And I just bought them. I, I mean, some of the, t you know, I went from the Japan company book and it would have a description like, um, you know, makes refrigerators, toasters and radiators for cars. And I thought, OK, that's that's what they do. I mean, that's I knew nothing about these companies. Yeah. And and it was just a statistical thing. And it it worked out really well. Um, and it even it worked out so well uh, if, you know, I did not hedge my yen exposure 
And if I would have, I would have had, um, you know, so I was working against the wind, really, because the yen I was guess strengthening was, against the U.S. dollar it most was of the time for that period. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so my investments overcame the strengthening. And if I would have hedged it, I would have done even better. And so, you know, I, and there's probably still an opportunity there now, but, um, that worked out great. And it, it was kind of one of those, like, you don't have to be a genius to do this. You just need to, to be able to, to execute. You just got to be able to actually go through and do what you're supposed to do, which is buy them, buy them at a big discount to their net current asset value. And then not, not think too much about the business because the it's, you're only getting that opportunity because it's a terrible business. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, some of them were good. I guess they were good businesses. Japan and maybe just, unusually had some good, good net nets. Yes. But, you know, the, the thing is, like, it actually works out better not knowing those details. And yeah. I, I think, um, you know, I always think about it in, like, real world terms. So, like, I like to buy and sell random stuff on eBay just because you could buy it cheap and then, you know, you sell it for two or three times the amount. And, um, and that's the same as like the net nets. It's like, you just need to find, so I need to know that the product isn't broken when I buy it. And if it's not broken, <laughs> then I just need to repackage it and, you know, put nicer print around it and a good description. And I could sell it for, for a multiple of what I bought it for. Um, but you need to know the market and know that, that this stuff is, is possible. Um, I mean, we're doing this with, I, I do it. Um, I was buying like computer equipment for a while off of government liquidation sites. And then I would resell it. I was, um, my youngest brother has, uh, this like Lego village, I guess you could say. And my, uh, my boys like Legos. And so they were like, Oh, we should buy these Legos. So we were buying those off of a different auction site. And then, um, we would, so you could buy like a Lego car that's like 95% complete, right? And then there was this other site that my brother told me about where you could buy like the individual little pieces. So I would go on there and make like a $3 order for like, you know, the pieces are like three cents or six cents. So I'd buy all these little missing pieces and then put the whole thing together. And then I sell it for like 10 times what I paid. And <laughs> I mean, we kept doing that. And um, it's, it's and then I turned to a buddy of mine who lives down the street. I told him about this. He's I, I mean, I I I'd say he's made almost ten thousand dollars doing this with these Lego things. He'll he's like scavenging these pictures for like, you know, a half broken um, Star Wars ship or something. And then he's like the kids are getting all the extra parts and then you sell it. And it's like to me that that's the essence of like the value stuff. Right. Like. Yeah, you bought the car and it's missing some pieces, but you know, at the worst, you could you could make more than if you just sell it and pretty it up. You could make more than uh, what you paid, or if things work out and they get those pieces, you could sell it for you know five times five times as much. Yeah, I, I think about them the same way. But you basically buy them when they're limping a little bit, and then yes. uh, I, I think it's it's Buffett's analogy, right? And then when they start walking properly, then you sell them, but. You don't don't get in your mind that this is secretariat. You just you just selling it when it's not limping anymore. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly it. And I mean, you know, like thinking in like real life, I've I've interacted with some of these businesses that are um, they'd probably be a net net. And um, you know, like 
people recognize things are wrong and they want to change it. And um, sometimes just through sheer force of human will, they're able to change enough. And um, it goes from being, we're going to close every day to, hey, we'll survive. And when it looks like it's going to close, if that's when you're able to buy it, then when they survive, it's, it, you know, people get optimistic and, and yeah, you just want to sell it when they're walking. That's exactly it. Well, I feel the same way. I think you, you, even as a business, you look at these things and if you're, if your only analysis is, I think this thing's going to survive rather than this that's, thing's going to be incredible. Like that's a much simpler level of analysis. Yeah. They got some liquidity. They kind of, yeah. they want to change. They want to do a little bit better given uh, like even sometimes just a quarter or given a few years, this thing will be a much different beast. And then you, yes. you, you're buying it on its sort of broken down parts and selling it as a little business. And that's a, that's a really good way. It's a really easy way to make money in, in, uh, in small stocks, I think. Yes, it is. I mean, the thing I, I learned as well with small stocks and value stocks is you really need to approach them more as like a credit analyst. And so you say like, would I give them a line of credit for, you know, a few million dollars for their continuing operations. And if you kind of look at it like that and say, are they credit worthy? Are they going to figure out a way to pay the bills going forward? Um, and would you extend them credit? So in a lot of cases, these things that are, so I always see first time investors, their biggest mistake is they come in and they're like, hey, look at this net net. And, you know, we'll just say it has like a $50 million market cap and it has, you know, $100 million in um, like assets and stuff. And then it's got, you know, all this debt laying out there. And it's like, yes, it's, it is barely worth more than its market cap, but the debt's going to sink it. And if I was lending money, I would not lend them any more money. Those creditors are trying very hard to collateralize what they have. Whereas if you have some little cash box with a kind of a, you know, old fashioned business or something, it's like, I, I would lend them money. And so if you think about it as a, as a lender, it's like, sure, I'd make, I'd make a loan. They would be able to pay it back. You're, you're basically validating their survivability. And if you're able to validate that, and then you say, you know, how much would I lend them? Oh, th that's far in excess of, you know, you could kind of back into like, this is another way to value them. And it, it's a stable business that's, that's worth investing. Yeah, I have, a, I have a similar approach. I think what would happen if I got control of this thing and just ran it, like rather than trying to extract all the value, which the current management team is doing, you know, in, in the form of salaries and options and all that sort of stuff. And I saw one yesterday, just got there a little bit late. It's like a $30 million market cap, makes, uh, makes small engines and equipment and stuff like that. And uh, clearly, the, the management is just extracting as much as they possibly can. And they've given themselves all a big bonus in the event that it goes into uh, bankruptcy. And then they've like got the prepacked bankruptcy. So they've gone and found someone who will bid $550 million. So it is like it's massively undervalued. It's just carrying a lot of debt. I just think if you just get there in time and you realize that this thing's going to fall probably through the equity into the, into the debt holder's hands, maybe you can pick it up in the debt. But... They're just too tough. I think it's really hard to find them at this point in the cycle. Everything's just sort of so expensive at this point. How do you? How, yeah. how, what do you? What do you do in the markets like this? Yeah, I mean, so so we've seen a lot. It's it's you know two separate stories, right? So like, if you're buying um, the tech companies, they're flying very high, which is crazy. At the same time, 
some of the stuff we followed is at 15 and 20 year lows. And um, it's just, there's no interest. And I think compounding that is there's also the um, potential upcoming SEC rule that you can't invest in dark companies in a mutual fund. Um, and so there's been a lot of forced selling and there's really no one to buy it. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think these things kind of work themselves out. So like my favorite dead company is Hanover Foods, which is here in Pennsylvania. No one likes them. I have yet to find it. Every every value investor I've talked to on this one, they're like, I gave up years ago. I <laughs> no, I don't know who owns the shares. There, there's no one. And um, you know, so they had this crazy um, that uh, fight with the family at the top, and the brothers and the sister all hated each other, and they had this crazy trust, and the one uh, brother maintained control through it, and then. Uh, a couple years ago, they cleaned all that up and their annual reports suddenly had all the shares and all of that structure was gone. And you say like, well, something's going on behind the scenes. What, you know, what is it? We don't know. Uh, and then that founding um, or the controlling chairman, he passed away this spring. So it's like there was some sort of estate planning. So now you have um, the, the children running it and uh, it's a cleaner structure. And it's like, they have their own incentive to eventually work things out. And it might be that they get squeezed in the market and they want to sell to someone or, um, you know, so do you, have you ever talked to Larry Goldstein from Santa Monica partners? No, no, I haven't. Okay. He, he had been doing, um, net net investing and deep value stuff. He's been doing it since the early eighties and he returned something like 22% after fees since wow. then. And he would always tell a story about going to, um, it was somewhere in rural Pennsylvania. I don't remember that it was, um, I used to know the company name. Anyways, he went and sat down with the directors and said, look, you're selling for less than net current assets. Here's what this means. Did you know that uh, comparable companies are selling at this crazy amount? And he said, here's how much money you'd make from this. And then, um, he, his last slide was, here's my investment banker's name and phone number, and do what you want with it. And he said about a month later, there was the press release, we're selling, because the executives just didn't even understand how cheap it was. And when they realized they could unlock all this value and walk away, it was like, we just need the, the number of the guy to do it. <laughs> and you know he provided that. And and that was it. Um, that's uh, I, that's so. Cr I, I worked for an a, an activist who that was basically exactly what he did. Just walked in and explained to them how undervalued they were. And often they were being run by a founder who was an engineering background who just didn't think in terms of capital structure or didn't understand it as an investment. And he just explained to them that you can pay out some money or you can buy back some stock, and that will radically change the way that you're viewed in the market. And then you'll have a high share price. You can go and do other things. And when he did that, like, it was amazing how often they were like, oh, I just never thought of that before. That's, yes. Yeah. It's, it is a crazy thing. Although I'll say the pool of companies that that works with has, has shrunk. And a lot of what's left is, you know, for lack of a better term, run by crooks right. or people who they're, they're trying to pull the value out themselves. Right. And, um, what we've found is um, we, we've done a couple lawsuits 
I guess, activism lawsuits. And, um, you know, when you start to, to go looking in file cabinets and, you know, opening dusty closets, there's a lot of things that these companies are doing wrong that if you hold them to the law, which is, you know, have these annual meetings or, um, I mean, here's one, a lot of companies will pay friends and family um, a similar or the same amount as a bonus. And, um, you know, you could say by law, if you're paying 10 people the same $200,000 a year, that's actually a dividend that all shareholders should get. And, and the court sides on, you know, that's actually what it is. And so then it's like, well, they need to pay this stuff out. And a lot of them won't do it until they have that pressure. And um, so we've had some success with that. We're actually um, in a lawsuit right now with Life Insurance Company of Alabama. And uh, similar thing, I think they're like 30, 30 or 40% of book value. And um, all, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. And the, the case is moving forward. And um, we'll see where it goes. I mean, the mistake many of these companies make is they hire the lawyer across the street. They hire somebody who has no idea what being a listed company means. And, um, you know, that's great pressure because then when they realize they have to comply with these things, the alternative is do we pay out some crazy settlement to shareholders or should we sell? And, you know, what we've told Life Insurance Company of Alabama, same thing as, as this story about Larry is, look, here's all these comps. You're worth so much more, just sell. And and then, you know, it works out and, and this is kind of behind you. Um, the problem with that is, you know, for many executives, there's a status to being an executive seat plus at the country salary. club. Yeah, plus the salary versus, uh, you know, a private investor or independently wealthy or whatever that. So they would rather be the CEO of a, a tiny little machine shop that's that's on the rocks versus they have all the money from that sitting in an account. And uh, they have to explain, you know, that they're, you know, private investor. Uh, it sounds pretty good to me, but I guess it's a horse for courses. That's yes, I, it's. You know, and I don't know. It's just the I, I know of a local bank here where that's that's the case. Uh, the CEO loves being a bank president, right? And um, loves walking around the country club as a bank president. And I mean, this bank is just it's been undervalued forever. Uh, they were ranting about how interest rates needed to be six percent before they'd loan money which, I mean, it'll never happen again. So it's just, they're not, out of Not touch. in our lifetime. <laughs> yeah, not in our lifetime. And, uh, you know, that's just, but he liked being an executive. And so he, he'll stick around. What about suggesting an LBO or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think they need, a lot of these companies need someone sort of sophisticated to help them with those things. And, um, you know, back to what I was saying earlier about being credit worthy, if if you would if a company is credit worthy and they're investable like that, then yeah, an LBO is a a totally valid way to go. And there's little private equity groups that look to do this. Um, you know, I think as private as public market investors, we just see like a a small sliver. Um, I know. Uh, so one of my brothers, his he um, 
he's in sales at it would be like a, a deep value company right they do um vacuum systems for machine like if you're like so if you stamp a credit card there's like the little rounded corners that when it goes from square to rounded those little pieces That's what they <laughs> yeah they get sucked up into the into this vacuum system and they they do it and it's you know the whole line goes down if they can't suck these things up but um and this vacuum company it's crazy profitable and it was just run by a family and um there was a little local private equity group that was buying industrials and uh they paid some sort of a crazy price for them there you know my brother's company is also um for a while there's the fad of like the hidden champions and um this sort of company would really fit i mean they were doing like you know a probably a 15 or 20% return on equity or maybe even more. And their only competitor is a company in the UK worldwide. So there's just two companies that do these systems in the world, but you can't really grow the market that it's like everyone who has them has them and they break down, they get replaced. And, um, but it's phenomenally profitable for the owner. And, but it's, it's in a, you know, in a rust belt city and it's sleepy and um, he said the factory's from 1940, and it's just, it's just what it is. Um, so that would be a you know a deep value type thing. But yeah, the private equity company came in, and they I think they loaded them up with debt. They started paying themselves dividends, and you know it, it's kind of the, the um, that playbook. Did it run into trouble, or it's working? It's working so far. Yeah. And, it, and it's actually working so well. Um, he told me during COVID that his company is floating the rest of the companies in the portfolio. Wow. So it's, um, you know, these companies exist. And I think there's a lot of investors who are like, oh, if I could just find the private companies, that's that's what I'll do. I'll I'll buy these and roll them up and, and roll up the little conglomerate and stuff. Um, I think it's easier said than done, but they do exist. They're out there. Uh, you know, it's just hard to find selling that, you know, the people who are looking to sell, that's probably not a good deal. You need to find a company like this where they're not interested in selling and then you cold call them, get to know the owners and it's like, same as the net net, hey, you could make so much more money, they'd never thought about it. And it's eventually you, you work with them and they realize maybe I do just want to be at the beach house and not coming to the you know the grimy part of town to build vacuum machines but yeah so is is that how oddball stocks has evolved have you gone from uh really off the run listed stuff to so or, or how has it evolved yeah so we're we're still looking at um we still look at all the off the run stuff and that's that's really it um to the level so um i have a partner with oddball stocks colin and um he he is able to really dig into uh, a lot of, I guess, non-primary sources. So like a perfect example is um, a lot of these companies all have been parties to lawsuits and you could request the lawsuit information. And there's all sorts of information in there that you would never see in any filing that help understand what's going on in the business. And so... Um, we've done a lot of research into these companies and kind of have this database of information on, on all the 
these unlisted oddball names, small cap names that, um, you know, it's, it ebbs and flows, right? Like there's stuff at 15, 20 year lows. And then there's things that were cheap a couple years ago that are a hard pass right now. And right. so it's, it's all over. And is that, so oddball stocks, is, is it a paid newsletter now? Is that the, is that what it's yes. evolved into? Yeah. So we, we write on the blog, um, I think once or twice a week. And then the oddball stocks newsletter comes out, uh, I think it's five times a year. So it's once a quarter. And then there's an extra issue around, um, it's in the spring when we get all the annual reports. Right. And so yeah. what, what was the inspiration for the bank data? So um, it was one of those, it was a problem I was looking to solve. And this was when I, um, coming out of the crisis, I was looking at bank stocks to buy because they were so cheap. And I couldn't believe that some of these small banks were so cheap and they were profitable. And I just wanted a screener. I wanted a screener with um, bank specific stats and I couldn't pay for SNL. And so uh, I, I looked and they had the um, FDIC call report data. And I thought, you know, I had done programming. I was working in tech, um, had a good buddy who had done programming. He said, look, maybe we could pull this in and write our own screener and then um, screen for these stocks. And um, that's how it started. So it was one of those, like, I thought this would be, everyone would want to do this. I don't think screeners really make any money. Um, but that evolved into, let's build tools for investors. That evolved to, let's build in-depth market analysis for banks and uh, lead generation for banks. And then, um, you know, now with this deposit thing, it's like, now let's build deposit analytics um, and, and find similar customers. So it keeps changing. And um, it went from the screener that I was thinking we would sell for some, you know, 50 or $100 a month subscription to now it's, it's a full-fledged enterprise product. And, you know, there's consulting hours around building this and integrating. And um, we integrate with their own core systems and all this stuff. So it's, it's, it's changed dramatically. Do you still use it as a as a screener for banks to find undervalued banks? Uh, I have poked around with that, and um, so like one thing I found, and this is a secret I'll just let out, but uh, most of these small banks, the time difference between when they release their financials to the FDIC and when you receive your annual report or letter in the mail, uh, sometimes is between like a month and two or three months. And so if you're just able to look at that information as it comes out, you have an enormous advantage on anyone else who's waiting for the report in the mail. That's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good ad for your, for your, for your service. It, it is. And, you know, we, we don't really do much with the investing stuff now. Um, we've looked at like risk. We had some risk characteristics. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting, um, so in terms of valuation, when we had the product inside the Bloomberg terminal, we uh, wanted to do some valuation stuff on banks. So we had, um, let me think what we had. We had three three models. We had the, um, it was a relative model based on price to book and price to earnings. <coughs> it was um, a dividend discount model. And then it was this takeout model that we had. And then, so we had each model on the page 
and the value, and then you could adjust all the inputs. And then um, we had an average of those three. And that was kind of like what, you know, the average valuation, what it should be. And um, so the thing I found crazy, I started to, to kind of like run some stats on these is of the banks we covered, and we had like 1,200 at the time that were publicly listed. Um, the average price of the model of what its quote fair value should be was within about 10% of the stock price for 90% plus banks. So what that means is for about 90% of the market, it was right within a band of fair value. And you know, if you adjusted these inputs just a little bit, it, it would be almost exactly what the price is. And so um, it was kind of one of those, like the market was pretty fairly priced and it was pretty efficient. And then, you know, you could go digging in that last 10%. And um, usually in there, it was either the assumptions were wildly incorrect or something else was happening. And and that was kind of an advantage to, you know, you could take advantage of that by by finding something in there. And have those opportunities sort of gone away or what's the, why not continue to pursue that? Um, I mean, it was really the, the ongoing cost of being on the terminal. Right. But um, in terms of the opportunities in banks, I mean, right now they've been written off. And um, I mean, you know, in some ways you could say the market's correct, right? Because with rates where they are, um, I just saw the headline before we started talking that mortgage rates hit 2.98%. Um, it's going to be very hard for a bank to make money lending at 2.8, you know, 2.9, 2.8, 2.7, uh, because in a little, you know, once it drops a little bit more, you're basically lending money for no return. And, right. um, uh, so then you have to go into commercial mortgages to make more. And, uh, I mean, what we're seeing right now is like four, 4.2, um, interestingly, commercial rates have not really dropped about over year over year. They're about the same. Um, from what I've seen, except for some outlier banks kind of buying market share. Um, but, you know, that's really difficult. And like, you know, so I don't know if you'd ever looked at like the Australian banks. I mean, they, there's they only, lend There's money. only big four Australian yeah. banks. Yeah. But like they, you know, it's like they make almost no money on lending money. It's like because rates have just been so low for so long. And um, I we might be headed towards that same thing. And then now you have to make all your money on other products. And, so, and those other products are, are riskier. Is that the is that the problem? Well, I mean, so some of the products would be, um, you know, like overdraft and credit cards. Um, but what's crazy is uh, so ramping up to this year, J.P. Morgan kept showing all sorts of great growth. They had earnings beats, and um, if you dug into that, it was a lot of it was on consumer lending. So they were pumping up consumer lending. And then, um, and you, you make a is bunch that, of fees. Is that mostly on, unsecured? Is that? Unsecured the, stuff, right. yes. Credit cards, personal loans. Um, and then now they they put out a press release and it was, you know, hey, we have this enormous credit loss provision on our consumer credit because it's deteriorating quickly. Well, that was the, the rocket fuel on the way up. And, <laughs> you know, now that's a problem because, you know, the marginal borrower is is terrible at the top of the cycle. Right. And um, there's an analogy I 
I heard that it bears repeating for banks. They said, um, you know, bank lending is like going to a bar. It's not the first drink of the night that gets you in trouble. It's the shots of tequila as you're ready to walk out the door that are the problem. And, you know, that's that's it's so perfect because it's like at the top of the cycle, right as you're ready to leave the bar, you say, you know, I'll take a couple shots. That's the problem. <laughs> Those are that's what messes you up versus if right before that you would have said, you know, I think I'm done. I'm I'm just going to go home. You would have been fine. And that's the difference between banks that they lend into disaster versus ones that step away. So let me just go back to the when you this is a complete non secretary, but I've got the question written down. I kind of want to talk about it. Uh, your grandfather, who was a South American invested in South American companies, do, do you have any detail on, on what he did? Yeah, I mean, so it was um, he was doing so he made a bunch of money on Wang Computer, which was that was a tech company. Did it have a South and, American listing? No, no that, this is that was before not, that. that was that was American, and then um. He started buying these Mexican. It was Mexican stocks and um, Tel Tel Telmex, I think, is the name, or Telefonos to Mexico. That was one, um, and then it, that split off into America Mobile, which is like a, I guess that's like a cell carrier, and they, and I owned that for a while because I I had been given this and. <laughs> I rode the wave on it. I, you know, so they were um, back in the early 2000s. They started to put cell service in, you know, Colombia and Peru and all these different right. companies, right as it was all taking off. And their earnings were just—it was a rocket ship. And um, I want to say my—I mean, my cost basis on that stock was, you know, it was like a dollar or something. And then it. It was like at twenty or thirty dollars for a while. I mean, it was crazy, and the cost basis on the Mexican stock was a couple cents a share. And at one point, I remember selling it for thirty-five dollars a share after college because I was like, I, I, "What? I, what do I know about telephones?" And you know, I don't know anything. It's just what it what was, attracted your grandfather to it? Why was he Why was he interested in South American tech stocks, growth stocks? I don't. I don't even know. Um, he was not a, he was not tech savvy at all, which is, I just think he had a sense of like, this is the trend. And, um, I, I have no idea. I've asked Did that same like question. Did he have like a Fisher kind of, uh, scuttlebutt growth kind of structure to what he was doing? Did he have any, like, was it as, that's, it's reasonably entrepreneurial to be kind of hunting around for growth stocks. Even, even today, somebody doing that, you'd say that's pretty entrepreneurial. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and this was, you know, back in the 80s, and um, I I wish I could have asked that. So he passed away when I was in high school before I got into oh, what a shame. Instant. Yeah, and but I've asked my dad, who he doesn't he doesn't really care much about investing, and um, his siblings the same. They they never thought to ask, you know, why are you doing this? And um, it's it is fascinating to me though. Yeah, he his portfolio. I had. Um, <clears throat> he did a lot of tech stocks and I I had found some statements from back in the 80s and it was other um, up and coming tech names that became really popular and I don't know how he found these or I I have no idea no idea at all 
and it, and he wasn't tech savvy so this really was it was uh he was interested in the business he was interested in the growth of the business yeah he i i think that's what it was and he knew that he must have known that these were were good companies that there was something there that they were going to revolutionize things um but he was not tech savvy at all i mean he never owned a computer and so it was just but he invested in computer companies did he speak I mean, spanish no not <laughs> i mean he he was over so what's interesting though was um he was in world war ii and then um as he started to become successful uh after my dad and his siblings all moved out of the house um so you know he's in his late 40s or 50s he and his wife traveled the world and so they would go to all these different countries and um he enjoyed haggling in the markets and just checking places out. And so my thought is he kind of had one of these like, <clears throat> you know, when you're in Singapore in 1975, it's like, look, this is this is a real place. It's not a scary thing. There's companies making money here, too. And I could invest in that and get, he, get a souvenir had, while you're there. Yeah, he, he had more of the globalist mindset and um and it worked out really well. Yeah, he, he might be one of the great undiscovered investors. That's it. He, I mean, he, he, he always bragged that his biggest moment in investing was um, when Wang Computer had their proxy contest, and he had for, he forgot to vote. The company was calling him because he <laughs> owned you know some percentage of shares, and they said you know Mr. Tobik, we need your vote before we could proceed and he he was like you know i'm a big enough investor that they <laughs> yeah they were calling me to get my vote and so that was his claim to fame you know there are these very famous uh, well pro not very famous i shouldn't say but there are these uh, two the kiwi brothers the chandlers who who started out as uh i think they had a uh, one of the first department stores in new zealand and okay. they sold it and they had some money to invest. And so they bought Hong Kong real estate when they were negotiating the handover. So it was, pre, you know, not 1999. Yeah. It was like 86 or 87, which did, and they could buy them for like one times rental yields, these high rises, which, yeah. which then uh, they made a huge amount of money out of. And then the next step, they sort of thought, well, uh, telephones are going to revel, the fax is going to revolutionize business. And so they thought, where are the cheapest telephone lines in the world? And they found them in South America. And so there's a, a there's a there's an article about them in like institutional investor or something like that. It's one of the funny. I, yeah, I need to write this down. That sounds that's really interesting. It's a great it's a great story about these guys because they're real frontier investors, and they've gone and they've bought. They did. It wasn't even possible to invest in some of these countries. They had to find in order to make the investment, they had to find a UK fund that had a charter to invest into this country and they had to basically take oh, over wow. that fund recapitalize that fund and then push all of the investment through the fund into this i forget exactly which country but south american and so they bought the cheapest fax lines in the world and they've they've done spectacularly they're multi multi-billionaires as a result of doing all of this really frontier stuff it's that's kind of crazy it, I, it is and i so i wrote about I became really interested in the frontier stuff um, in 2012 when my second son was born. And I, I bought this book. I think I threw it away. Um, it was like 
investing in Africa or something. And the book was all about how Africa is really developing and it's going to be great and it's the next thing. And um, I understood enough about Africa to kind of spend some time Googling, right? And um, what I found was this company, I think it was Brawlira, and um, I wrote about them. And what I did was, you know, I couldn't figure out how, how do you invest? And so what the book was saying was, uh, if you go to each exchange's website, they would have a list of brokers who are licensed to trade. And um, I want to say they're in, you know what, hold on. Let me just pull this up. I want to say they're in Congo, maybe. And um, here it is. I contacted all these brokers. And I mean, they were just telling me, send me a check in the mail. You know, they'd, they'd email me from like an, you know, hotmail.com address. And it was Rwanda. Here it is. So it was the Rwanda exchange. And um, what do they do? They were doing um, Coca-Cola bottling. That's what mm -hmm. it was. And so uh, the company, they had an 85% of earnings were paid out as a dividend. They had a 7% yield. Um, and they were growing like crazy. And I, I, so I figured out how to invest. I emailed all these people, but I never pulled the trigger on it. And I wrote about it. And um, I started to get emails a couple years later of people who, I wanna say it tripled or quadrupled. And they said, this was awesome. <laughs> you know, they said, I, I just sent the check to whoever the person in Rwanda was. And they had, you know, some brokerage account, and they rode the wave, and it <laughs> it worked out. And um, I mean, so that stuff's out there. Um, you know, it's you just have to dig a little bit. But it isn't even. I mean, if you look at the Rwanda exchange, whatever thirty companies are listed, I mean, they have them all listed with links to them, and in most cases, everything's in English, and you just have to be able to to take the risk. Yeah, it's 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 real risk capital, right? You got to be prepared to lose the lose the what? Yes. Yeah, the the wire might never make it. <laughs> that that's the that's the risk. Yeah, um, but it's it you know it's it's fun and um, people did really. I mean, here's someone's comment: Rwanda could be the next Singapore of the world. You know, okay, well, that investment worked out. But those aren't things that you hold on forever. You you try it out and if it works just be happy that you made a, a nice return there's a, i mean there's a reasonable argument that africa might be one of the great undiscovered growth stories of the world you know it's and that just to go back to the thing you're saying about uh, mexico i mean a lot a lot of a lot of countries in the world don't have the legacy uh telephone networks built out but because uh mobile cell towers don't require the legacy they require a little bit of backhaul but all all, all telephones require backhaul you, but they don't need to wire it, so they don't have that yes. competing. Yes. So it's much easier to roll out cell phones. And then once you've got cell phones, you've got smartphones, you've got, mm -hmm. you've got that, they, they can make that great leap without having to build all of the, uh, the infrastructure that a lot of the other developed nations have had to do. So there's, I think there's some potential. I, I don't know much. I'm making it I mean, up I mean, as I'm talking was, about you, it. You just said the thesis of this book, which was uh, places develop at the baseline of modern technology. So... Uh, you know, when, say, 
Central or Southern America developed, it was it was at a much higher level and they could get up to speed quicker. And that's the case with Africa now is as it's developing, they have cell towers, they have smartphones, they don't need to wire the entire country. It It's ready to go. Um, and so like the big thing there is you could pay for anything on your phone, just like a Venmo. And it's they escaped all of the crazy payment stuff that we're stuck in because it's from you know 50 or 100 years ago and they started at a much higher level so that's the argument is if you fast forward 25 years they're going to be so far ahead of us because their legacy infrastructure is modern infrastructure right and and they have a, a better jumping off point so how are you for for oddball stocks how are you filtering sourcing validating ideas um, that's a good question. So we, we've essentially just built up this database of names. Um, the biggest thing is, so we, we've had this database of names of kind of unlisted OTC names. Um, but if you start looking at OTC names, what we do is we look at the highest share prices first down to the lowest. So you're going to waste so much time looking at things that are trading for 30 cents that are just junk. Don't waste your time. But oftentimes a company with an $850 share price or a $3,000 share price is worth, that's worth looking at. So like a good example like Boswell is- Boswell or um, something like that. Boswell or right in your neck of the woods, uh, Farmers and Merchants Bank is, um, I want to say they trade at like 5,600 a share or 6,000 a share. Um, I just got their annual report yesterday and it says right on the front, um, California's safest or strongest bank that's their tagline and um that's interesting there's a few big banks here <laughs> yes yeah and so but it's this high share price and you look into these those are the ones that are interesting and then work your way down and um you know amongst the cheap stuff like cheap in terms of of nominal price there's some interesting things but usually by the time you get down to those prices all of the you've already filled up your your watch list so are there any what what are the the special risks to trading this sort of stuff because these are these are not listed are they pink yes. sheets yeah pink sheets sometimes yeah some of them are listed and um you, you know some of these are just kind of off the beaten path names um but the risk is really that um <clears throat> they stop treating you as a shareholder and kind of pretend you don't exist um that's true. That's um, the risk is, you know, if you aren't willing to do some work to potentially unlock value, you could just be stuck in it until, um, you know, someone like us comes along and tries to unlock the value. And um, and then now the risk is that a lot of brokerages are cutting off some of these companies right. and they say you're not able to invest in them. Um, you know, brokerages cutting off access is kind of interesting in the sense of it's a negative and it's an opportunity, right? So the pool of investors who are going to be investing is significantly smaller. Um, in some ways, it's actually a better investor pool because most of them are very well educated as to what's going on. And, um, you know, so one thing we found with the Life Insurance Company of Alabama is that there's there's the family, there's a bunch of shareholders who maybe they own 100 shares from 
1970, and um, they just had forgotten about it. And then there's this pool of sophisticated value investors who know the name. And then um, we got in touch with a lot of them, and they said, yes, we absolutely want to be a part of this lawsuit because you know, we're all going in the same direction, right? And um, so I think in some ways it distills the quality of who the shareholders are. And um, the opportunity is if you are still able to buy them or you have a prime broker that could buy them, um, you could now get stuff a lot cheaper because people are being forced out because Fidelity won't let you buy it or um, TD Ameritrade will let you buy almost everything. So if there's still a broker, that's that's okay. And how do you how do you work with these campaigns? Do you do, do the people do, do people invest behind you and you're managing a, a pool of capital, or do you split expenses with them? How how does that work? Right. So right now um, we just split expenses, just as is you know a bunch of different. Um, entities. Uh, we've tossed around the idea of building out an activist fund that actually does this, that that takes uh, a pool of capital, invests, and as a fund works to unlock the value of these different names. Um, we're, we're kind of testing the waters on that, uh, but I think that would be the next evolution of, of some of these. Yeah. You could even do them on a case-by-case basis, just raise a special purpose vehicle for a single... Yes. Yeah. Single name. And, and that's kind of the idea is, you know, if you if you look at the universe of what's out there, right, and you say, you know, I'm just making numbers up. Let's just say that there's 10 companies that are perfect for this. Um, you start to build your position in the things that you're going to, you know, take do a campaign against last and, and sort of slowly build your position and then you know, come in with a, an entry position on a couple of the ones you're going to do right away. You know, in theory, this stuff, it over a lifetime of, you know, say five years, you're hoping to realize value on most of those names. And then it's like, we did the 10 campaigns, we're done, we'll spin that down. Here's another five or 10. And kind of, you know what you're investing into. It is, it's like, Here's the companies. Here's what our mandate is. This is what we're going after, and um, that's you know, interesting. Not- it's almost like a private equity venture capital approach to activism. It kind of is. Yes. Yeah. And we don't want to own the companies. That's the other thing. Is uh, you know we don't want to be empire builders and and own a bunch of things and roll them up. It's really um, look this. You know, so a friend of mine always had this analogy. He said a lot of these names to him is like. Um, a vault in North Korea full of gold. And he was like, the, he goes, you know, to me, the vault is there and the gold is there, but you're never going to get the money out. And what we're saying is, um, you know, in essence, we're going to kind of create a specialized SEAL team to go and get the money out of each of these vaults. And, um, and that's it. Once it's out, it's the mission's accomplished. I like yeah. that. I like that analogy. I saw yesterday someone has a, a silver deposit, and rather than mining the silver and storing the silver, what they've done is uh, they've turned it into coins. So that you, you just that's, store the silver in the ground and you trade the coins based on what you think is there. That's interesting. Yes, it's uh, the metals. I I've been fascinated by the metals. We talking about like collecting and stupid value stuff. Like I'll give this away too. Um, I was buying the, um, <clears throat> their silver coins of, um, 
N-U-I-E, Nui, I think is the name of the island. It's somewhere in the Pacific. It's I want to say it's part of New Zealand. And um, so they put Star Wars people <laughs> on the coins. And each year they have a release. So um, if you so when they come out, they're sold at the silver spot price. So like earlier this year, you could buy a coin and it would be, you know, $17. And it had... Um, I bought a bunch of them with Darth Vader and then the other guy. I'm not a Star Wars person. My kids are the um, the same kind of guy as the Mandalorian. He has that like helmet with the line in it. Anyways, I bought a bunch of these and um, they roll off each year. So like I bought the Darth Vader ones right before they were done selling them. Right. And then suddenly there's no more supply and um, prices on eBay now the sale prices are like $35 a piece. So yeah. like I basically doubled my money on Darth Vader. I need to wait until this year ends for this other Mandalorian kind of guy. And, um, but if you look back like two, three, four years, the prices are, they're like $60, $100 a coin or more. Wow. And it's like, it's just incidental that they're silver, right? <laughs> it's like, but I was explaining to my kids, I said, look, this is a perfect investment because we're paying the silver value, and at worst, we sell it back for spot, and we yeah. lose the spread. And I said, but at best, some Star Wars collector wants to buy these things, and we make some multiple of our money. And so they love that. They think it's great, and um, that's that's like a learning lesson for them, right? But um, yeah. Absolutely fascinating, Nate. Uh, one of the most eclectic discussions I've ever had. Uh, if folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact how do they go about doing that yeah so you could shoot me an email directly that's um n-t-o-b-i-k at completebankdata.com or check us out at oddballstocks.com or the newsletters oddballstocksnewsletter.com and bank bank data bankdata.com completebankdata.com yeah Complete. and you can follow me on um i post a lot on twitter now and my handle is just oddballstocks and uh, you wrote a book on banking. Don't forget to mention that. That's true. Yeah. So I, I wrote a book, uh, The Bank Investor's Handbook. And um, basically, I did that because when I was getting into investing in banks, this is the this is the story of my life. I can't ever find the things I need myself, so I create it. Um, I wanted a simple book that told me, how do I understand banks? How do I look at them as an investment? There was nothing out there except some old PDF someone wrote in 2002. And... Um, I wrote the book. And um, so if you're interested in learning about banks or just understanding banking and bank investing, that's that's a way to go as well. That's, that's fantastic. Nate Tobik, Oddball Stocks, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> 